just a moment's reflection. Uh, because that's the whole uh, purpose of it. So much of our life has to do with this body that we have. Probably most of business and industry has to do with taking care of the body in one way or another. And in our practice, as those of you, how many people are new here, are new to this practice? Very new. Self-understanding in all forms of Buddhist meditation is impossible without some understanding of of the body, of our body. And so there are so many different ways to uh, go about it, but they all come down to uh, learning how to investigate, how to experience our own body, and to learn about it. There's There's some seats up front, if you'd like. So what I'd like to do tonight is just to sketch out a little bit of what the Buddha said about the body uh, for us to see how that is relevant, if at all. Each one of us has to take it up and to see if it's helpful and to see it in in the context of how we already relate to our body. As many of you know, many, many times the Buddha said that birth is suffering Sickness is suffering, aging or decay is suffering, and then finally, death and dying is suffering. And if you read uh, more into it, you also see that he's saying that even uh, after you die, as many of you know, uh, it's not over, because then you get reborn and then it starts all over again. You pick up another body. You have to go through braces and pimples and <laughs> not having a date for the senior prom and being too short or too tall, looking too young, and later on you're worried about looking too old. And this supposedly goes on over and over and over and over again. So the first part, let's say being getting born, essentially what's being said is that the body is a field of suffering. That is to have a body is to have uneasiness, is to have discomfort, is to have unlimited kinds of pains. That is not necessarily each one of us, but if you look at the range of experiences that the human race goes through in having a body, it's quite extraordinary as to what we open ourselves up to once we're issued a body. So the first step is to be born. It's not only that the process of being born itself is painful, but it, uh, once there is a body, then a field is created 
wherein which it's possible to hurt. And as you, uh, as we look at our body, uh, we then move from that obvious uh, fact, at least it seems obvious to me, is to sickness, the second. That is, the body seems to also have a way of getting, uh, breaking down. That is going constantly going out of balance. Now, this first part of what I'm going to be saying is going to be a little bit uh, not too encouraging. It's going to be describing this aspect of the body. See if you have any emotional resistance to what's being said. And that's what I mean by reflection. It's not just to the facts. It's really to seeing how this affects you. And so what the teachings say is, again, there are just so many different kinds of diseases and illnesses and sicknesses that one can have. If any of you are in the medical sciences, you know, you can look at, go through some of those big books or now all these videos on it. And you can see it's incredible the things that can happen to us. Accidents, in addition to dying of old age, all kinds of infections and diseases and just discomfort just in a normal day the body going out of balance, the elements falling out of alignment with each other. And then we move from the possibilities of sickness and illness, which which come whenever they want to, it seems, to the decay of the body, that is, the aging of the body. And so that finally, the sickness accelerates And at a certain point, no matter how well endowed you are, no matter how fortunate you are, no matter how much you've taken care of your body, at some point it gets old. And parts start to wear out. And again, there's a great range here of some people who are rather youthful, despite the chronological age. And for others who at that same chronological age can barely function. and a dramatic change in the functioning of the body and the physical appearance of the body as the decay accelerates. And then finally, at at a certain point, we began the journey with the breath entering the body, and as the breath conditioned the body into life, so when the breath leaves, it conditions the body into death, what we call death. And the body returns to where it came from, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And the body becomes a meal for someone else, just as we've been uh, all along eating other beings. And then it supposedly goes on around and around. And now every step along the way, we have problems with just what's been sketched out. Uh, by and large, uh, the attitude that we start out with is not to see this, and certainly not to dwell on it, but rather to see the body in a somewhat a different way. Let me describe the different uh, models that we have about the body and see if any of them are appropriate for you. Uh, we can see the body as a kind of miracle. Those of you who are uh, scientifically minded or 
any of you have seen some of these extraordinary films now where you can look at the functioning of the body uh, through electronic microscopes or even just uh, just a, uh, just in a very naive innocent sense of the incredible things that bodies seem to do I mean if we had to be in charge of the body we probably wouldn't live one afternoon but there's some intelligence at work and the body just does all these things and so one way to look at the body is uh, is beautiful it's an extraordinary miraculous creation and that certainly has some truth to it we've already suggested the body as being prone to suffering but now <clears throat> we now we have another uh, aspect of the body and I'd like to go back to birth if you recall it was said that birth is suffering and now look at that from another point of view which affects everything that follows from the birth because one meaning of birth is suffering in the Buddhist teaching is literally that the physical body uh, is, uh, goes through pain in the process of being born and also the physical body just by becoming present by coming into existence is now uh, and it becomes an occasion for pain to be experienced if you didn't have a body you wouldn't have these the possibilities of so much pain but there's another meaning that of birth is suffering and that is uh, the birth of I and mine and here's where we come into um, the importance of certain approaches in Buddhist meditation which I'd like to uh, at least hint at tonight and for you to get a sense of some of this so forgetting about the mind for the moment the body goes through its journey everything that was just mentioned and all along especially as we begin to develop from infancy there's something in us that begins to identify with the whole process and that's where excuse me where pain becomes replaced by suffering or not replaced but uh, includes now something called suffering sorrow and so forth now here's the central purpose in a nutshell of Buddhist meditation on the body Um, if you read the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the uh, or the uh, which is the key meditation text for our practice, one fourth there are four contemplations, and one of the first one is the body. And often you'll see phrases like "seeing the body in the body." Now, what's being developed there is our ability to see the body as this is a body. Now that isn't what we normally do. Typically, uh, very often we'll identify with the body. That is to say, I am the body. An equation is made between the particular state of the body and then who it is that we think we are. And let's go through that because, I mean, it's quite staggering when you start to see all the different events that happen to a body and how we keep personalizing it we keep using it as a basis to build a self out of it to build some notion as to who we are it starts very early in life when we are very young children 
we look into the eyes of adults and soon they start to tell us what they think of our body. And then peers come into it and so forth. Before long, we start building up a sense of the body based on its height, on its weight, on the color of its skin, on the color of its hair. The people with straight hair want curly hair. The people with curly hair want straight hair. The white people want to get sunburned. The dark people want to be lighter. Tall people stoop. Short people wear higher shoes. We start being concerned about the weight of the body, the features. Is my nose uh, the right length? If not, we'll have to do something about it. We start measuring our body against some norms in the society as what an attractive body is. And there's no doubt about, about what it is because we're being literally bombarded by the mass media being told about what it would be nice, what we really should look like. And so all of these events, we're told perhaps that a young body is better than an old body. And a body that's not too fat and not too skinny is better. Now, the key thing here is the identification. That is, something in the mind grasps on to some attribute, some, part, some aspect of the body. It could be anything. And then the equation is made is that I am that part. Let me give you some uh, pretty obvious examples. The, one of my earliest traumas was being taken to a shoe store by my mother. And at the time, I had my, the size of my feet were relatively large compared to my, the size of my height. I was about 11 or 12, I don't remember exactly. But I know that, uh, anyway, I'll let the shoe salesman tell you for uh, instead of myself. We went in and he measured my foot and he looked at me and he said, he's got a really healthy foot on him, God bless him. <laughs> what he was trying to say is that uh, he's about four foot eight, but shouldn't he be about six foot two to have a foot like this? <laughs> And I remember very, very much blushing and just being incredibly embarrassed that I had these uh, feet that were too large for my height. Of course, he wasn't the first one to notice it. There was my friends that already told me that. <laughs> and we carry these things. We build these materials into images about ourselves and then we suffer or we feel good. What if I had had you know, just perfect feet? Wouldn't very di- very different, or to me one of the most e- dramatic um, examples that I've come upon in my life, which um, was a great teaching for me, <coughs> was a person that um, I met some years ago, a student of Vipassana, and we worked uh, together for a number of years. Uh, the first part of it was uh, an exercise in total futility many, many interviews and just, I don't know why the person came back and how I stayed in it, but it was really uh, just an incredible feeling of being stuck. This person was a young woman with one arm. I don't remember, either she was born with one arm or very, very early in her life she uh, had one arm. The identification with that 
the fact that there weren't two arms, was so powerful that the equation was made that I am this absence of one arm. Of, uh, that is, I, have, I should have two arms and I only have one. The fact that this existed was, was the, the, the dominant fact for this person. It dramatically overshadowed the fact that she was very intelligent, very attractive, very sweet, very kind, and all kinds of other things. And we went around on that. Of course, at first, when somebody only has one arm, you never talk about it. <laughs> you just don't. Uh, and, of course, uh, she was quite practiced in not talking about though no, she would talk about it eventually. But at a certain point, and this was not so much out of my own wisdom as uh, exasperation and uh, just throwing my hands up, I realized that this person was one of the biggest egomaniacs that I had ever ever met in my life. And I told her that. No, it wasn't some kind of a, uh, a strategic, well-thought-out, wise remark. It was just spontaneous, out of, I think, out of uh, exasperation. And, of course, this sh- shocked her because you don't tend to think of yourself as an egomaniac if it's something negative. If it's something positive, you think of yourself that way. Let's say if a uh, person is dramatically very beautiful and totally attached to that. But if you call someone an egomaniac because they're totally attached to, let's say, the lack of beauty, that's a strange thing. We don't think of it that way. But it's exactly the same thing. According to these teachings, the attachment, uh, either way, is an error. That is, what the person is doing is taking some aspect of the body and using it as a basis to create a self in the sense of an image about, in this case, herself, as being very severely damaged, rather than a descriptive fact about having one arm. And obviously, it's a handicap and inconvenient. And, you know, I understand that uh, she was living in a world of mainly two-armed people who were uncomfortable and so forth. But it was a turning point for both of us. And it helped a lot. And certainly in my own case, I realized uh, how identified we all are and very attached to endless parts of the body, endless aspects of it. This part's too big and that part's too small. And then a gray hair breaks out of your scalp and you know there's anxiety. Or worse, the hair doesn't grow back and there's a piece of skin where once there was hair. And then the endless uh, uh, effort and energy and money that's going in to counteract this process. If some of you have seen on TV this kind of hair replacement, <laughs> a gentleman who looks very uh, handsome and he shows you all the different you know, before and after sh- uh, shots of people who've taken this hair replacement. And then finally at the end it's supposedly some dramatic shock. And he says, not only am I the president of this hair, club <laughs> but I'm also a member and then it shows a photograph of him all as bald you know half bald and of course he's much more handsome with the uh, hair placed on the head okay I'm not I don't I don't mean to get moralistic about it. you know do what you want 
what I'm trying to convey is uh, is something about the way in which we relate to the body, and that there and there are consequences to it. So we're very very concerned with the color of things and with the shape of things. And all of it becomes the materials out of which we build an image and, by and large, we suffer. Okay. So this is familiar to it, right? Okay. Now, what the, uh, what the Buddha is saying in some of the early meditation instructions is that the attachment to the body is so fierce, so strong, not only the attachment to our body, but the attachment to other people's bodies. And the attachment, uh, the main attachment that creates suffering is when it becomes greed, lust, this kind of ferocious (coughs) grasping after bodies that the mind conjures up. Now then, enormous amounts of suffering come out of that. Essentially, the body becomes the medium for a kind of desire. Now here, uh, I think it's very important uh, to look at this carefully. And again, I don't know what your experience is. How many people here are familiar with what are called the Asuba meditations or meditations on the unloveliness of the body? No one? It would help me if you... Okay, not too many. Okay, then you're in for a jolt. You may as well find out about this before you try to become a member. Because you may not want to become a member. But then after you hear it, I think you'll want to become a member again. But let's see. In these meditations, um, what you contemplate is your own body. Uh, and you contemplate your, your, your body as... Uh, the Buddha talks about it as sort of like bag, just as there are sacks of, let's say, sesame seed, and you can open up the bag, and you can see there are sesame seeds in it. The body is made up of a number of sacks. And when you open it up, what you see are urine, feces, pus, blood, phlegm. You get my drift? <laughs> okay. Now, what you do is... Uh, it's a, actually a very systematic, and the Buddha uh, uh, talks about this as being an extraordinarily useful meditation. I had a big problem with it when I first read it. I couldn't believe that the Buddha said it, because I had read so much and felt uh, this. I finally found what I wanted. And then I came upon these contemplations. <laughs> and I figured, well, this must have been added later on by the commentators. <laughs> It's not that the Buddha was um, against beauty or didn't appreciate the fact that there is beauty in life. What this is is an antidote to what even then was a problem. The fact that we turn the body into a, a, a field where tremendous suffering comes about because of uh, desire, because of vanity, because of all the things we've talked about. And so this contemplation, which starts off by um, simply, sometimes it's called meditation on the 32 parts of the body. The number is not important. But what it is is you go through the various parts of the body, first familiarizing yourself, much as you would, let's say, in a class in anatomy or physiology. And when you get really good at going through it 
and know the names and the locations of the organs, parts of the body relative to each other, then you begin to not only name them, but you begin to uh, reflect on them and visualize what is really going on. And all it takes is one. You don't have to really do all the 30 parts, 32 parts. If you find one part of the body that's really vivid and begin to examine it, you'll see that it isn't something you really want. It's not something that you desire. And what it does is, has the opposite effect of what we're trying to do all day long. That is the entire fashion industry, the uh, health industry, the uh, beauty care industry. I mean, you know about all the salves and ointments and oils and I don't know what else to call them, that we're rubbing into our bodies, right? And all the different things we're doing. How about the fashion industry? The incredible amount of money and time and effort that goes into endlessly clothing this body. It's staggering. Now, why are we working so hard? Maybe it's because one aspect of the body is that it isn't so beautiful when you look very carefully at it. But now, here's the very tricky part. This meditation on the unloveliness of the body is mainly for monks and nuns. It's a monastic comes out of a monastic practice where people have taken a vow to chastity, to celibacy. And some problem comes up when it's brought into our society and most of us are not monks or nuns and are involved and have sexual relationships. It can lead to a lot of confusion. And so, uh, if you haven't read it, it's important that you, know, that you do come and uh, understand it for right now. The backdrop for having meditations like this, and then another one, which is very powerful, and perhaps I'll read to you from it, cemetery meditations, where not only do you contemplate, let's say, your own body by seeing what's inside, but then you contemplate what happens when you die. Uh, And the old yogis were a rather robust lot. They would, as part of their training, would go to uh, charnel grounds where dead corpses, where corpses were discarded. And they would meditate there. They would stay there for long periods of time and watch bodies go through decomposition. They'd see scattered bones. They'd see skulls. Now, why why do they do all of that? Is it some kind of morbid preoccupation? When I practiced at uh, Buddha Dasa's monastery in Thailand, when you come into the meditation hall, one of the first things you see is hanging from the ceiling is a the skeleton of a man, the skeleton of a woman, and the skeleton of a little child. And Buddha Dasa is a very happy, jovial person. In fact, most of the teachers that I had who were worth talking about are having a good time. Now, is there some relationship between being able to do things like this, being able to take a really hard look at the body and having a good time? Okay. Um, One thing that we do is we identify with the body. We say, I am the body. Well, if you do that, then of course when the body dies, 
then you die. We also do something that where there's a little bit more freedom. And that is, it's not simply I am the body, but, but this belongs to me. Perhaps the person only had one arm. This is my arm, this is my leg. And so it's, there's a little bit more space there. It's not simply that I am the body, but that this, this, is me, this belongs to me. But in both cases, if anything's damaged or lost, it's a direct threat to who it is that we think we are. The whole notion of a self is under fire. Now, these uh, meditations on unloveliness, on the foulness of the body or on the tendency of the body to decay, to decompose, uh, perhaps I'll read you some of it. It's not that the Buddha uh, doesn't understand or is trying to stamp out beauty, that, but actually it's to come to a place where there's neither aversion to the body nor this incredible indulgence that we have. Can we come to the place... You see, the typical starting point is that we are attached to the body as being I and mine. No matter what happens to it. If you remember what was mentioned, the body gets sick. Well, we take that personally. Certainly as we age, we take that personally. We use that as materials to feed the self in certain ways. By and large, the self uses it to feel badly about itself. And so, every step along the way, there's a strong attachment between what's happening to the body and who it is that we think we are. It's not Now, if you just look at it neutrally, all that's happening is what's happening. Everything else is extra. Everything else is added onto it by the mind. Bodies age. Bodies get sick. Some bodies are tall. Some are short. Some, some, uh, some, the color of some hair is blonde. The color of other hair is, is dark. These are all just facts of nature. You can look around and see it. But then something happens and it gets poisoned. We make these into materials. We build it up into I and mine and always, of course, with comparisons. And we create a living hell on this planet for ourselves. So that a a huge step in terms of liberation is beginning to see through this process. Now, one extreme is to have an aversion to the body. And these meditations on on unloveliness are dangerous that way if you don't know what you're doing. For example, if you already have a negative image of your body, you could misuse this meditation into feeding that and even feeling worse about yourself. Not only am I too short and too old, but I've got all these bags of feces and urine. Or as Taratoku, many of you met him, a very charming and polite Tibetan Lama who one day said through translation that, oh, the body, yeah, that's a shit machine. If you look at it, you know, it's not that any of these uh, concepts are the whole thing. To say that the body is unlovely, that's not the whole truth. It's also lovely. To say that the body is totally lovely, that's not true either. Obviously, there are a lot of aspects of the body that we feel uh, uncomfortable with. 
And it is true. You know, we keep putting stuff in here and it's a very efficient machine. We chew it and then it comes out feces. So it seems to be one of the jobs of a body is to do that. Okay. Now, the purpose is not to get us depressed. The purpose is not to develop aversion, although you may have to go through some of that, especially if you have a big shadow. In other words, you're a lot of repression and attachment to how fantastic the body is. And in the New Age, there's a lot of that. If you live in California, it's a hard road. I don't see how you can practice Vipassana in California. (laughs) They say it can be done, but I'm still waiting. (laughs) Because there would be the need to glorify the body the need to uh, endlessly feed it and massage it and so forth, train it. Okay. Now, the point of these reflections is to come to the point where you can say, or not really just say, but experience, there is a body. It's not that the body is mine. It's not that I am the body. It's just simply that there is a body, which is a fact. And all everything else is extra. Now, I don't know if you can accept that, but everything else is extra. Now, when Zen Master Dogen attained enlightenment, when he came to his teacher in an interview, he said, the teacher asked him what happened. And he said, body and mind fell away, dropped off. Now, let's just stay with the body part. Does that mean he became invisible? I mean, his body dropped off. He walked in with a body. He couldn't have gone into the interview room without a body. What dropped off was the attachment to the body. And it's not to, it's to come to that middle ground of being able to, to care for the body. And here is a very delicate point for the, because we're lay people. I feel there's a real problem that is the, uh, the meditations on unloveliness have their place, especially if you're uh, going to be celibate. They're incredibly helpful. But for us, let's say if you are in a relationship or want to be in a relationship, uh, it can be used occasionally, but unless you really know what you're doing, and I think you absolutely should have a teacher and also do it gradually, probably it's not the correct meditation to use. And there are others other forms in our practice to help you come to the same place of there is a body. It's not I, it's not mine, but there is a body. And you can care for it, you can use it. Let me give you an example of of the danger because it came up a few years ago when there was a retreat and a friend of mine who was a monk led the retreat. And we tried an experiment because we've roughly been practicing the same number of years uh, roughly a similar teaching, but he had been a monk all these years and I have, I have not been a monk. And so I sat in on the interviews. He was running the retreat. And then we would talk after it to compare notes. Well, what would you have said? And we had a lot of fun. It was not that different. But then in one interview, a person came in, a man came in and said he was having a lot of problems on the retreat because he kept having uh, these fantasies of his wife. And he just couldn't follow the breath. He couldn't practice. He was just having a lot of sexual fantasies. And so this teacher said, well, why don't you contemplate 
your wife is her body is having feces and urine and pus and you know etc to see the whole thing and the person heard it and said yeah I, I tried that once before another teacher told me that but I, I'm not sure that I should do that I said well why don't you try it okay when we talked about that one that was the one uh, interview that there was a big uh, difference my own feeling is that that was not appropriate for a lay person and let me tell you why just put yourself Let's say you're uh, a man or a woman waiting for your partner to come home. You haven't been on retreat, and they have. They go, well, how was the retreat? Oh, it was re- <laughs> really, it was really nice. Uh, what happened? I, well, at one point, oh, I just kept having all these fantasies, fantasies about you. But uh, the teacher X, a very wise person, <laughs> told, me, told me to see uh, your body as just a uh, container of feces and urine and pus. How do you think your partner would feel about that? Well, maybe a a very liberated person might actually uh, enjoy it and even have a good laugh at it. But the point is, since very often sexual relationships or experiences between people already have problems, (laughs) it's not like we're in a state of perfection and now here's this one little chink. We already have problems. And to add on top of that, uh, because supposing you do a good job on this meditation, <laughs> and you don't want to be celibate, so, so that you have to be careful uh, with it. Now, the other thing, there are other things that can be done. But um, I think the main thing that all of us can do that is useful is simply it's training in observation and discernment. It's our old friend wisdom. You know, I'm not telling you to not rub all these oils into your body. I mean, I do it too, you know, and night creams and uh, (laughs) workshops and go see your chiropractor by all means and everything. But also, let's rub some wisdom into it because if you don't, it's it's endless. It's not going to really help no matter what you do for this body no matter how many creams and ointments and oils and workshops, I know because I'm, I'm an ex-health fattist. In fact, I still am very involved in natural healing and all these things, but my attitude has changed dramatically and it's been central to my practice. So let me share a little of that with you. Because I don't think my practice is so different from, from yours, but we'll, we'll find out. The first um, jolt that I received was some years ago in coming into an interview with Sansanim, a Korean Zen master who some of you know. And I had a bad cold at the time. But overall, I've been fortunate to have pretty good health in this life. And I walked into the interview room with, you know, with this bugle red nose and sniffing and Sansanim just practically fell off his cushion laughing. And so I, you know, I was totally humorless. And he said, uh, I said, you know, what's so funny? And he said, oh, you're sick. <laughs> I said, yes, but I still don't get the joke. And he, said, and he said, oh, you have big attachment to health. I was still humorless. I didn't, I didn't quite see what the point was. Uh, shouldn't I care about health? And that just made him laugh even more. He was just doubling over. And I never quite got it. <laughs> Yeah. 
Anyway, it's not that he was advocating disease. The Buddha wasn't advocating disease either because if you're very sick and weak and neglect your body, how can you practice? How can you do anything worthwhile? It's more that what he saw was uh, a dramatic overestimation of the body at the expense of the development of the heart. See, that's where, where now wisdom starts to emerge. The second jolt that I received was some years, a little bit later, not too much later, in um, receiving instructions on a Subha meditation. And this was something that we were doing over a period of time in a retreat from an Asian teacher who was most enthusiastic about teaching it. And the first night I was just appalled. And I, here's this Vipassana that I love so much. Everything but this. I mean, I love this part, but can we do without this? The second night, a lot of us who came back to the retreat, we saw that, oh, it's more of the same. And it was like rats leaving a sinking ship. I mean, people didn't even stay for the end of the talk. They just couldn't get out of there fast enough. But what I learned from that, not immediately, but actually over a period of years, was, was that there was strong emotional resistance to looking at the body in an unsentimental way, in an unromantic way, in a way that was not so totally conditioned by Hollywood, by glamour magazines, by everything that has really affected us more deeply than we know. Being able to just look at a body as a body, or as my body. I have to use that phrase just in conventional English, but just to see it without this extraordinary investment as to what it means for me. Now, the degree to which there's denial, that is, we can't accept the fact that we're going to get old. We can't accept the fact that we're going to die. We can't accept the fact that we're not the most beautiful, handsome person on the face of the earth. To that degree, any teachings that are pointing that out, of course, we're tremendously resistant to them. It's our shadow. You know, we we can't bear it. And little by little, it became obvious that what the Buddha was saying was just something that was true. It was just real. It isn't the whole truth, and it's not that he thought it was. It was an antidote, what is called an opposing force, arousing an opposing force. If people are dramatically overattached to desire and to the body in such a way that they're causing immense suffering for themselves, then they need medicine that pushes to the other, the other extreme. But neither extreme is is the final resting point. In other words, the training is not designed to take you to have an aversion for your body, which would be very destructive. But it's to balance out the extreme attachment that most of us have. Finally, over a period of time, coming to a place of where the body is the body. We can see a body as a body. We can honor it. We can have respect for it. We can care for it. We can appreciate it. And we can appreciate the bodies of others as well. But more and more, it assumes its rightful proportion. That, in terms of the overall priorities of living, that is, if you're on any spiritual path. And so that's what this is about. Now, how could we attain, if you, would, if you want to, if any of this seems like something you'd like to do, how can we come to a, a more balanced view of this body without excessively getting involved in reflections on, our, on the unloveliness of the body, 
or its obvious death, the fact that every one of us in this room will die, there's not one of us who's going to come out of this alive. (laughs) Not a one. Each one of us is already dead. No question about it. A bunch of skeletons sitting here talking to each other. If it's not this moment, it will be some moment soon. It's just quite obvious, isn't it? Now, this is another aspect of the teaching. Why would we want to do that? We'd want to do that for the same reason we'd want to do any of the other things that were mentioned. It's to improve the quality of life. It's not an exercise in morbidity, but rather an exercise in realism so that we can come to a place of really enjoying our life, of living fully and mostly of spiritual growth. Okay, how can we work with this tendency to identify with just about anything that happens to the body? any of its characteristics and the fate that awaits it. Just through our old friend, simple mindfulness. If you, Mindfulness plus discernment. That is what is called satipanya. Perhaps the most important term that you can ever learn. If you don't want to learn any Pali term, Pali is the original language that these teachings come in, remember satipanya. Not so much the word, but what it is, because this is the heart of what we're learning. And without it, it would be hopeless. Satipanya is mindfulness plus discernment, or what is sometimes called truth-discerning awareness. It's that capacity which we, are defi- which we are developing, which each one of us has in seed form right now. The capacity to place our attention somewhere in life, let's say in this case, the body or the mind, and to not only stay there with it, to not only place our attention there, but to be able to discern, to be able to grasp, to learn from what it is that we're attending to, to allow nature to reveal itself to us, to let nature teach us the obvious lessons that it is teaching us. It's really more to become students of nature, Nature is just teaching all the time. Nature is lawful. It never takes a vacation and it's constantly teaching about the impermanence of everything. A root contemplation. And what's needed is some students, namely us. Okay, now, here's uh, a way in which this this can help you. It's not so much, let's say you've heard this and you realize probably that all of us have put in just to come here tonight in terms of everything that it took, let's say, arranging the outfit, getting all set, or let's say for the day, and just imagine how much of our time is spent doing that, and what we inspect. You know, is that sideburn even with that sideburn? It's a little longer. Make it a little shorter. Now, I think they're just about perfectly even. I've got to smooth this out so that the skin that's starting to show through in the front part of my head doesn't show. and tighten the belt a little bit, whatever it is that we're doing. Now, let's say you hear that, my goodness, all the suffering that we're doing as we fight nature, we fight the inevitable. Wouldn't it be a lot easier to just surrender, to live in accordance with nature? As we age, we age. Is that some kind of criminal offense? It seems as if people respond that way. 
why else do we have uh, an inability to even say our age after we get a certain after we, we are a certain age somehow it's a classified fact I had one teacher um, who I thought very highly of and I, I asked what I thought was a very innocent question how old are you because it was obvious that he was I don't know I mean I later found out but extremely agile and youthful and he just became very self-conscious and a nervous laugh and refused to answer. I, you know, I saw that. I had asked the wrong question. This was a spiritual master. So I didn't say anything. Finally, very nervously, said, I'm in my 70s. That made it worse. When you're in your 70s, I mean, it's, that means it's still uncomfortable. 71, 78, I'm in my 70s. Uh, do you see what I'm getting at? Obviously, there was something that was not worked through. There was something that was being held onto. I don't see how this can be called enlightenment. Now, what I'm suggesting as a very practical way is not something unrealistic. It's not for each one of us, let's say, if you agree with what you've heard. It's true we cause so much suffering by identifying with our bodies and also uh, laying it on other people that I'm just not going to do that anymore. Well, you can't stop you. It's good. It might be a nice intention, but it won't work because the tendency to identify is very, very powerful. And it's the way the ego constantly derives energy and creates the sense that it truly exists. But what we can do, and in general, I think this is a very healthy practice. You know, these days we're all in a hurry to let go. Isn't that becoming a a very, uh, really legitimate term. Everyone, we all think we know what it means. Letting go, and certainly if you're in Buddhist circles, it's just obviously one of the best things you can do. The best. Just give it up, let it go, don't hold on to it. Drop it. You're hooked. And so people are letting go left and right. Wherever you go, people are letting go. But I haven't seen much change. Now, it seems to me that part of why that's so is that we haven't fully understood attachment yet and that we have to really start chewing on and eating our attachment. You know, just as you, let's say, we we know that if you chew your food thoroughly, not only is it healthy, but the whole process works. It's natural. We have these teeth for a reason. And if we chew our food thoroughly, then the rest of the process goes a lot more easily. I think we're in a hurry to let go, and especially as we read all these books and hear talks, it now becomes something quite desirable, and the ego wants to get in on it. Oh, letting go is great. I'm going to do that. And in the process, of course, just it's circular. It just keeps running after its tail very skillfully. It wants to. So that it seems like a sensible approach that is not beyond our grasp, that is not idealistic, romantic, and fanciful, is to begin to just take stock of yourself as you are. So you don't have to give up any of those night creams. You don't have to, uh, if you're wearing a hair covering, keep it. You know, if you have padded shoulders or high heels or uh, whatever it is you're doing, keep. but start to 
Listen to the heart as you live your life. Start to see what's going on. I'm not saying get rid of it. I'm saying pay attention to what to the law, the dynamic that's at work when we identify with some part of the body and see if there's suffering there. Because as we... You see, if we don't dig... The, the job of our practice, the job of satipanya, of wise attention, is to show the heart just exactly what is going on so that it becomes so compelling so that, that the, the fact is totally and deeply absorbed so that the heart finally gets it. You mean to identify with a part of the body is actually an exercise in suffering? Yes. But it's got to be gotten at a deep level. It's not just like perhaps we all understand it tonight. We still won't be able to release ourselves what we've got to begin to see is that it's foolish to live this way. Mainly, it's foolish because it's unintelligent, because it doesn't work, because life unfolds independent of what we do. And if we grasp onto bodies, which are constantly changing, it's a setup to, to suffer. And so, I'm not suge- suggesting you let go of one thing. What I am suggesting is you begin exactly where you are. And you start to chew on your attachments. When they come up, really be with an attachment. Really see just what it is. Notice the anxiety as you prepare yourself in the morning, as you get dressed, as you groom yourself. Again, I'm not saying get rid of the anxiety. Just notice what's involved. Notice what's involved in the selection of clothing. Notice what's involved in people's perception of us. How we're starved for people to tell us how beautiful and handsome we are. And if they don't, or they don't do it fully enough, how we're crushed, or how our day is totally colored in a negative way. Now, if you want to keep living that way, by all means. But the practice has in it the tools, and they're rather simple ones, not easy to put into practice. It has in it the possibilities of beginning to see where we're caught, beginning to see the costliness, of being caught, and gracefully and gradually. It's not something that happens overnight. Having more room. Perhaps we'll always identify with our bodies. Perhaps we'll always care about how old we are, how close to death we are. Perhaps we'll always care about the state of our health and our weight and so forth. But it is possible, through practice, for that to ease up dramatically. So that even though it comes up when it's accompanied by awareness, it's no longer so devastating. We see this mechanism at work. Sometimes you can just have a good laugh at your own expense. Okay, so the the whole point of what the Buddha is attempting to do is to bring us to a place of equanimity where we care for the body, where we have a body, but where we're not tormented excessively by it. Uh, One uh, model of how to look at it, I'm not saying it's perfect, because none of these models are going to do justice. Life is just too concrete. Uh, Krishnamurti, who some of you have heard, have read, had an interesting way of looking at it. He said, although uh, I know I'm not the body, I still have to take great care of the body. And he said, it's something like this. It's like, let's say you're an officer in the cavalry 
No. Uh, you go into warfare riding a horse. Now, you are not that horse, obviously. But the state of that horse may determine whether you live or die. So that you have to take good care of that horse because you and the horse are essentially a unit that is interdependent as it goes into war. And so it's, it's to come to a place of caring for the body in some realistic way. Probably for most of us, it will be scaling some of the uh, obsession down. Some of us uh, are not really in love with the body. If we were in love with the body, we'd take better care of it. We're in love with the images of the body. It's not the actual body. And in this first contemplation uh, that uh, is so important in Buddhist meditation, seeing the body in the body, what is meant there is, can we see a body as a body and not stray into other realms where the mind appropriates the body as being itself? And then we get lost in that linkage. Can we separate out and understand here's a body and here's sudden, oh, and look at that. Look how the mind grasps onto it creates an image about it, which is a picture, or some words about it, a verbal conclusion. And where we very often what we're relating to and protecting is not the physical body, but the mind body. Some notion that we have about ourselves, some notion about how we think other people will see us. And wisdom is cutting through that. It's being able to recognize the difference between the body-body which is the body just as it is, from moment to moment, no more, no less. An in-breath and an out-breath, throbbing, heartbeat, feelings of warmth, feelings of coldness, heaviness, lightness, sometimes pain, sometimes ecstasy. Being able to experience the body as this is the body and being able to see that the mind then enters in and makes a story out of it. And if we can't see the difference, if there's no satipanya, if there's no wise attention to, to investigate and to sort out that difference, then we suffer a lot more than we need to. Okay. Any questions or comments? Anyone reflect on your book? Yes, go ahead. It's not too much. Actually, the process of enlightenment is totally letting go of the identification with mind and body. That's what Dogen meant when he said mind and body dropped off, dropped away. Uh, You're looking for words. See, in other words, you want another concept for what it is. How about if we just forgot about the concept? It's just what is. It's what's happening. See, there is a mind. We're not trying to kill the mind. We're not trying to kill the body. That is, it's a process. Okay, I'll call it we're a process. Does that make you feel better? Yeah. So, uh, and there are ways, after all, a lot of what we're doing is not, not only is it helpful to care for the body in all the ways that probably we all know, 
But one of the uh, much more radical, I mean, there's no comparison, we're much better at caring for the body, is we don't know how to care for our mind. And what meditation is about, the Buddha is the great healer, the great physician of the mind. And so it's not to kill the mind, but rather to, in ways that are hinted at here tonight, is to begin to see relationships that actually are illusions, very tenacious um, illusions, which, which result in suffering. So there is a body, there is a mind, it's the functioning. Does that make sense? Good. Um, I really resonate when you say, talking about the heat, not to eradicate or say, I'm not going to do that anymore. You're not going to do what anymore? When you look at, say, something you're doing, oh, yes. getting ready in the morning, and you look at me and say, I'm not going to stop this, I'm just going to watch this. Mm-hmm. And then what comes up for me on the heels of that is the great anxiety of like, seeing it mm-hmm. and then what? Learn from it. I understand. Don't try to be in any middle ground. See, that's an impersonation. As we're trying to do an imitation, you know, like someone would imitate a President Reagan or ex-President Reagan. It w- it w- you laugh. We all laugh because it's close. But we know it's not President Reagan. Don't do an impersonation of what you think a person who's not identified with their mind or body is. Okay, let me give you an example of... Is that... It's not clear? Um, In other words, don't, don't create some ideal and then uh, sort of harm yourself endlessly try seeing that it's beyond your reach. In Vipassana, we start where we are. Let, let me give you an example of how this process might unfold in a way that could be healthy. It has to do with learning. You see... Uh, Let's say you do whatever you do and we all do as we prepare in the morning and uh, you begin to notice that there's anxiety in getting ready for the day. You know, about how you look. Oh, I didn't get enough sleep. There are bags under my eyes. So we have to do something about that. Camouflage in some way. Okay, whatever it is. Now, we begin to see uh, whenever, when there is an attachment to something, let's say when we hold on to something or when we don't like something and try to push it away, that there's a price to it. We see that it's painful. Now, uh, we have no control over that. That is, the pain comes up. See, let's say your reaction of anxiety. Could you pass a law and say, okay, uh, now that I heard that talk at CIMC, I'm not going to be anxious anymore. I'm just going to get ready in the morning and I'll try to be attractive, but there won't be any I or mine in it and so I won't be anxious. You can try to do that, but it probably won't work. But what we can do is, see, we're not at war with this process. What we're, what we're doing is, the process will get flushed out by life itself. There's, there's no shortage of opportunities to see vanity at work, or to see I and mine at work. Okay. So let's say one, one of the things that we learn is that when we attach to something, let's say we attach to a particular aspect of the body, and then maybe we don't have it, maybe we do have it, and then we lose it, that we suffer. So we start to say, oh, it's like, see, the, the, the learning mechanism is a very simple one in our practice, and it's like if you stick your hand in the fire and you get burned, after a while you stop doing that. Now, we're getting burned, as the Buddha once put it, like the, the whole world is on fire. 
And he, what he meant was it's on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. It's an inner fire. We're being scorched. <laughs> what the purpose of Dharma is, Dharma is cooling. Dharma is to put out these fires. It's a cooling, to come to some peace. Okay, so one way in which we learn is that we behave in a certain way, we get hurt. And if you're willing, if, see if there's satipanya, if right in the moment that it happens, if you're there with it, the attention, the hurt comes up, the grasping of the hurt comes up, and the wise attention is right there with it. There's a learning that goes on. Something uh, is, is absorbed. And over a period of time, more and more. Now then there's another side. The times when we don't identify, don't get attached, are some of our happiest moments. Well, let's say, for example, in, in meditation, sometimes, perhaps some of you have had this experience. You're sitting in meditation and... Uh, perhaps you're following your breath and suddenly thought goes into abeyance. There's no thought at all for let's say a few minutes. And also there's an experience of how happy you are. But now satipanya sometimes can, can see, sure, one of the reasons you're happy is you're not identifying with anything. You just are. There's just pure being. You're just sitting or with the breath itself. And, and try this one. Uh, you don't need to use unloveliness to help come to this objectivity. You can just use uh, almost anything. So let's say the breath. If you follow the breath, and I don't know you know, what levels of practice people are, but if you follow the breath, this is not beyond anyone's grasp. At a certain point, your ability to stay with the breath improves, of course. If you do it, it will get better, stronger. And the time comes where there's just a very smooth, effortless breathing. There's an experience of the breath. Perhaps there's a calm and a stillness. But also, you'll see that there's no breather. Breathing is happening, but there is no breather. Now, when I say there's no breather, what I mean is, what would a breather be? A breather is some thought in the mind, or some picture in the mind, that is, I'm breathing right now. Isn't this nice? I have such a smooth, calm breath. That's a thought. See, there's no entity known as a breather. There's definitely breathing. That's indisputable. But everything else is extra. It's contrived. It's fashioned in the mind. So it's strange. You see, because that's part of why we're terrified of enlightenment. Because we're being asked to let go of that which is most familiar to us. And also, uh, the greatest burden, which is what we think we are. Enlightenment is becoming a complete and total and utter nobody. Do you want to be a nobody? But again, it's not the idea of being a nobody, because that's another thing. Somebody, nobody, it's the same game. It's just when you eat, you eat. When you breathe, you breathe. What else is happening? And from the point of view of, of wisdom, all these other things that the mind makes up about what's happening are blocking us from freedom. They're holding us. So you're learning negatively by seeing that when you attach to something and create a self, out of, let's say, your body, you suffer. And then you see in those moments when you don't do that, that it feels is a great relief. You feel good. Oh, I get it. Stick my hand in the fire. Ow. Don't stick my hand in the fire. Hmm. So I'm okay. And so it's kind of little by little putting those two together. Beginning to taste a higher happiness that comes that has nothing to do with identification with the body. 
so much of what we, of what we call happiness is when the, we finally get the body to be the way we want it to be. Perfectly dressed and outfitted and the right weight and the right hair looks just perfect and you, you know, the whole thing. And then somebody says, oh, you're just looking wonderful today. I am? Oh, yes. Oh, thank you. And what we're used to is of getting our happiness and our unhappiness outside of ourselves. Something happens outside of ourselves. People, climate, money, boss, you know, whatever it is. But the day comes in meditation when you see that there's an inherent happiness. There's enough happiness to go around for all of us. It's just a question of, do you want it? Help yourself. It's free. It's just waiting. Any limit on it? No. Help yourself. Okay, but where is it? You already have it. These other things produce a certain limited kind of happiness. Now, more and more as you, as you taste an inner joy that comes from any uh, spiritual development, then, of course, the tendency to, to attach and to want to get things from the body is less. You're not as dependent on that. If my body is beautiful or handsome, I'm happy. If it's not, I'm unhappy. Well, what then what's going to happen as we get older? You know, I remember some years ago on the cover of maybe Life or some magazine, it had a, a young girl in a garbage can, uh, in the garbage can, and said, 21 and washed up. It was in California. It was saying that the youth culture was so strong in California that at age 21, women were already washed up. You know, you weren't young enough. So, uh, you know, uh, so how, how are we going to live out the rest of our days in this struggle with nature? Yes. Well, see, I, I'm not sure. See, I think it might be a question of our language, but I'll, let me do the best I can. Uh, it may be that if people have a very negative relationship to their body, that some remedial work is, as you say, to own it and to feel better through... That's what's going on now, right? All these exercise studios and health programs, it's so people can feel better about their bodies and better about themselves because they feel better about their bodies and to feel healthier and younger and to get more out of life. That's what's going on right now. I mean, it's like massive. Okay, now, that's good. It's probably better to have that than to be just, you know, low energy, self-deprecating, depressed, and down on yourself for having, having the wrong kind of body. I got issued the wrong body in that supply room when I came, came out here. But wisdom is going beyond all of that. Freedom is beyond that. So that I could, if I understood you, that would be on the way. Again, it's, it turns on the word own. See, if it's an attachment to... then you're, If you're creating an entity known as you, which owns the body, then we're back where we started. You're going to suffer. Um, yeah, I think 
what does that mean, uh, unfinished business? Yes, so then that would be released. There's no problem with anything that you're saying uh, unless you make a self out of it. That's what I'm saying. That is, a, that, that is it may be. I don't because that formulation is not exactly to my liking. It's not so simple. You have to be a somebody before you become a nobody. Um, it sounds cute and it sounds accurate, but there's something a little... I'm not, but I don't want to get into that. Uh, but let's say there is, clearly, it seems to be some just good old common sense that um, if a person is just tremendously down on their body and on themselves, really, because how can the two go together? And there's a lot of repression and tension. Anything that helps release that, whether it's the functioning of the body, you know, just like it can work better, but also in the process, emotional release is going to be helpful. But the real question is, do you then, if you want to go on this, on this journey, there are healthy states that come about through various therapies. But liberation is letting go of the attachment. It has nothing, to, the body can function beautifully. It can, it's not what the body does. It's how we relate to the body in, our, in, the, in, the, in the mind. And I think the, there is a reason why there's so many remedial therapies around, that we need them. You know, and that they are on the way and they're very helpful. But it isn't the last stop. That is, because, you see, if the remedial therapies finally contribute to just more uh, selfing, you know, in other words, ego now organizes around its very trim body that can run for, you know, a few hours and that can, you know, so then it's the same game. In the one hand, we put ourselves down, and now we're just incredibly uh, developed physically. Good, but it, what we're talking about is freedom from from the whole game. Please. Uh oh. Uh, Only a fool gives advice. Mm-hmm. And after that, and I worked in, I studied with uh, With who? Sports. Yes. And after that, I started to see just whole body inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, like people. And I, I'm really excited with it. All my life, I, I look at you or somebody else like an X-ray. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, when I started to meditate and use uh, this practice, uh, I, I started to think, okay, maybe I will, uh, can drop this um, uh, no. mm-hmm. And uh, maybe I will use uh, breathing. When I will breathe and pay attention on my breathing, maybe it will go off my, uh, when I look at somebody. Mm-hmm. So, and, um, but it doesn't work because uh, I, I can breathe, I can uh, be aware, 
Yes, I understand. Are you ever attracted to anyone? Hmm? Are you ever attracted to anyone? Me? Yes, you. But you are. You see, the problem, uh, traditionally, for example, recently on a retreat that we had right here at CIMC, there was a woman from Sri Lanka course who'd been steeped in this in Buddhism and had been practicing for quite a while and she got into very very deep states of samadhi on a retreat here and what she started to see well, were skeletons now this is an ancient thing it's happened to me I mean it's not so unusual I wasn't trying to see them in my case skulls okay and she saw uh, this came up in an interview and I said, well, how do you see me? He says, I see you as a skeleton sitting there talking. Uh, she saw herself. Her husband did the retreat with her. Same. She was visiting her children and their little children, her grandchildren. She saw them as little skeletons. Wherever she went, she saw skeletons. However, in her case, and here's the key, it's not having that image in and of itself that's good or bad as the same as seeing things as beautiful is not in itself as bad. Is what this helped her do was to loosen her attachment so that she could, there was a uh, more of a freedom, more of an inner freedom when she understood, she was started to understand that she was going to die soon. She started to see, uh, learn, she learned in a staggering way within two or three days, she went through the whole, you know, volumes and in her case, it was very, very creative. And then they reached a point where it was no longer a positive. See, the point is not to become averse, to develop, you know, I can't stand the body. That's another attachment. Or I love the body. They're the same thing. It's an antidote. And it's designed to take you beyond both extremes so that you're neither grasping onto the body or have an aversion to it, but rather can experience a body as a body. She finally got to that. Now, one way that she did it was when she would get to skeletons and had had enough, what was suggested, which is it's a very ancient, uh, there's nothing much to it, you can either study the skeletons at that point as impermanent, so you apply wisdom to it, and something happens when you start to see that the skeletons themselves are impermanent, so that you're not overly victimized by it, because it sounds like you're being controlled by them. Or take two or three deep breaths right into the heart here. And often the imagery falls away. But in your case, the problem isn't the skeletons, it's your reaction to them. So you have to be very... Your practice should include awareness to how you react to when you see that, because it's bothering you. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have to begin to see that when these this comes up, that you get bothered by it. And little by little, as you are able to see the reaction to seeing skeletons, 
that will fall away. But you don't see skeletons 24 hours a day, do you? I didn't think so. Ah, just new people. But as you get to know them, then what happens? They fill out? (laughs) Oh, a body kind of springs up around it, grows up around the skeleton when you get to know them? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a skeleton? Does that help you? Okay. Uh, okay. Well, you see, again, we're back, I think, to the same thing. You have to see your emotional reactions. Because if this is a defense, as sometimes it is, to his experiencing another level you know, of the body, the pain of the body, the aging of the body, and so forth, then anything can be used to defend yourself. And I don't know if you're, if you're doing that. By the way, in general, awareness of the breath is considered, by and large, as the safest approach for most of us, and for lay people, a lot more appropriate than any of these contemplations, for obvious reasons. It's very benign. You know, it's not, it doesn't have the, the problems. If you start to contemplate the unloveliness or the, uh, the fact that the body is going to die, that can lead to emotional problems. That's why it's often helpful to have a teacher. So the breath is the safest. I would still continue working with the breath. We have time for one quick comment or I wish it were true that as you get older this ha- this becomes less and less maybe to some degree but every time I visit my parents in Florida, I see that unless we do something about it, uh, there's a different kind of vanity. There's the vanity of the adolescent. There's the vanity of the old person. There's the defensiveness of the adolescent, the defensiveness of the older person. And it's the same thing. And we'll just be lowered into the grave the same way. And freedom is seeing this process and letting go of it. Okay, thank you. Why don't we feed the skeleton some tea? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.